Wonder Thing Studios presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 more minutes with Cat Rambo. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Moses Siragar. And you've tuned in to a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is our opportunity to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in a never-ending quest to improve our own. A never-ending quest, indeed. And a never-ending quest to share some awesome, awesome radio Skype time with my buddy Moses. Uh, Dude, thank you so much. It's been a while since you've sat in the co-pilot chair, and I'm delighted to have you back, man. It's awesome to be back. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And ironically enough, the our guest host for this episode uh, was the last one that you were on with, as I recall. There seems to be some serendipity going here. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I went on strike and I said I will only do Cat, cat Rambo. That's it. You know, only Cat Rambo podcast. No Cat Rambo. Don't call me, Dave. I'm sorry. <laughs> and there was, and I did, and here we are. <laughs> That's right, friends. We're, we're foregoing the stalkerish intro uh, of our guest host because, as you hear, it's Cat Rambo. And uh, if you want to catch her long stalkerish intro, that would be on the Twenty Minutes with episode from July 29th. Just search Cat Rambo on the uh, on the Roundtable podcast website the new and improved sexy roundtable podcast website and uh you can catch all of that awesomeness now moses dude i figured i just do like a quick overview of cat's doings since then and be done with it right <laughs> i could do a whole intro just on the stuff she's been doing since july man dude let me, let me just really just real quick recap just a few of the highlights Um, She has written a a fabulous commentary on gender and diversity in science fiction over at Clark's World, advocating for hashtag purple SF. And friends, if you haven't read this, go out and read it. It just brings a whole, it it ties the whole discussion down and really grounds into, I think, what's really important. Now, also at the opening of 2015, that saw the launch of an entire curriculum of her online classes, including the six-week writing fantasy and science fiction short stories, the advanced story workshop, character building, plus courses on podcasting and building an online presence. She has also started working with Supernatural Seattle, a blog for speculative fiction that shows, quote, the speculative side of Emerald City. Uh, which is really kind of badass as well. Uh, She has stories coming out all over the place, including one titled The Threadbare Magician in the still-running Kickstarter campaign for the Genius Loci Anthology. I think I'm saying Loci or Loci. I'm not sure. I'm going to say Loci. I think that's the way it is. Uh, Now, that's from Ragnarok Press. And friends, if you want to see some Cat Rambo fiction and a whole host of other incredible stellar luminaries like Shauna McGuire, Alethea Contis, so many more, uh, I think think, uh, Ken Liu's uh, got a, a story in that list. Doesn't he, Cat? Yes, I'm pretty sure he does. Yeah. I know Andy, Andy Duncan does, too. Yes, yes, absolutely. Friends, that, that Kickstarter is still running. There's still time to get your bucks in and make that thing happen. Uh, uh, and, of course, she has a new book coming out in just a few days titled The Beasts of Tibet, the first of a quartet of books in the series published by the astonishing Wordfire Press. Now, it will be released at Emerald City Comic Con and from there out into the world. Now, if you want to get this book signed at Emerald City Comic Con, here's a tip. John Barrowman 
will also be at the con. And I have it on good authority <laughs> that wherever Barrowman is, Cat won't be far away. So <laughs> find Barrowman. Rambo will be there somewhere. Dear friends, please welcome back to the big chair at the round table, author of over 170 original fiction publications, the VP at the mighty science fiction and fantasy writers of America, the Nebula nominated and world fantasy awarded Cat Rambo. Cat Ma'am, as excited as I was the first time you were on, if it's even possible, I'm even more excited now. Thank you so much for coming back onto the show. I will come back anytime you want to have me because this is a lot. It's always a lot of fun. Thank you. It's a lovely intro. Uh, you know, even when I'm abbreviated, I still manage to turn them into superhero origin stories. <laughs> that, that's that, that's kind of my vibe. Well, let's 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 dive into this. I'm ready. I'm ready to rock our twenty, and I'm gonna go heavy on the ish minutes with Cat Rambo. I'm just gonna set the timer. Bingo, bingo. All right, we'll ignore that later. Um, Cat. I, I'm I'm actually going to kind of break the rules of the roundtable in the 20 minutes with. We, we tend to be all over the map uh, asking about craft and diving into all sorts of things. But I think we have an unusual, a unique uh, uh, opportunity here. Uh, you have a book coming out, The Beasts of Tabat. Mm-hmm. And uh, in researching that book a little bit, I discovered you've actually been writing in this story verse for years now. And there's, there's work out there right now that... that, that is set in this world. So what I'd like to do, if we could, over these 20 minutes, and, and Moses and I will jump in and ask our, our appointed interviewer questions to dig in for the details, but I really want to explore the genesis of this story world with you and explore your process as it evolved and, and how it and you evolved uh, to the point where we're actually seeing books coming out in this world, if that's cool with you. That sounds absolutely lovely. <laughs> awesome. So, so the first story that was set in in Tabat in this in this fantasy port city with this steampunk magic vibe. Which which story was that? When did it come out? I am pretty sure, and I'd have to go look at my bibliography to make sure, but I I'm pretty sure it was uh, the Dead Girl's Wedding March, which actually takes place underneath Tabat, uh, <laughs> and it's a kind of. Uh, Sort of a literary uh, fable as well, uh, but takes place in in the city below Tibet, which uh, occasionally gets referenced in the other stories, and it does in fact exist okay. in my mind. So now, Tibet was originally an idea for an online game, was it not? It was. It was a friend of mine was uh, starting a mud, if you a multi-user uh, domain or dungeon, however you want to uh, call it. And he had some super cool code, and what he wanted people to do was each builder was responsible for a specific area, and you were sort of – you were the god of that area. And actually, when people started playing, the idea was that you would kind of look after your players and, and award karma points and stuff. And unfortunately, it never got to that point. That sounds fascinating. That's a bummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, w- it would have been fun. It would have, I think, sucked huge amounts of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. That too. So, so from there, that that idea that you generated that that didn't just go on to the ideas that never happened stack. It stayed with you. No, what happened was it, I then I kind of went back to it when I was working with another mud, and we were going to do a uh, sort of the mud closed on Saturdays, so we could do maintenance, and so we were thinking about doing a little alternate place, and I was like, oh, it'd be kind of cool to do a single city. 
And I started building it, uh, you know, which is, means mapping it out and just doing the descriptions of the rooms and stuff. And then I started writing stories uh, and went back to that city because I had spent so much time thinking about it that I knew it very well. And I wrote a story called I'll Gnaw Your Bones, the Manticore said, uh, which is about somebody. It, it became clear to me that in this world, there were intelligent magical beasts uh, like manticores and uh, centaurs and all of this. And that, uh, in fact, the world's economy depended on their work and sometimes their physical bodies. And that just sort of uh, fascinated me. And so that's what's going on in uh, Beasts of Tibet, it, which is the it's a moment where a lot of the beasts are beginning to say, uh, what are our rights? And how do we go about getting them? Interesting. And even even from that first uh, uh, story, that was this this political, cultural, social dynamic uh, framing up in your mind even then. I it wasn't in Dead Girls. Uh, Dead Girls was basically I had this idea uh, of a, a rat talking to a woman and courting her, <laughs> uh, and so that's what that was sort of the, the center conceit of that uh, story. Um, it wasn't until I, I got into doing Manicor, uh that it became clearer to me what this world was like. And, and then I had a story in Realms of Fantasy called Narrative of a Beast Life, uh, which is modeled on a lot of, of uh, early slave narratives, uh, because it's one of the things that these books are about for me is how we sort of... Uh, both demonize and infantilize uh, those who we oppress. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what's happening in this this world. And that's, of course, uh, has been going on for centuries. Well, and that's really, I think, one of the hallmarks of, of your fiction, Kat, is, is not only are you able to bring forth these marvelous, fantastical themes and these, and these rich, lush worlds, but you, you're always able to ground it into a, a thematic or... or uh, there's there's some issue there's some function that you're using to to examine and illustrate through your writing and and that I think makes it incredibly relevant uh, is is are you are you is is there an and I, I keep using this word agenda and I know you don't have an agenda but is is there something you're hoping to explore in Beasts of Tibet? Sure, I mean all good fiction is about being human. And it's about what the experience of being human is about. And so that's what this book is about. Uh, what's it like to be on either side of the equation uh, where you're where one side is getting uh, exploited? Uh, you know, what happens when you have a system where that's going on and what does it do to people and kind of what stories come out of that? Okay. Now Moses, I know you're you're a very vocal proponent for for cultural freedom, gender freedom, racial freedom. Uh, uh, have, are you as intrigued by the beasts of Tabat as I am? Well, I, I am, especially the you know Cat was just talking about exploring some of those uh, you know issues that come up when there are exploitations happening, and that's a really neat angle to take on unicorns and dragons and manicores and centaurs. So I was going to ask you actually, Cat, if you know, what did you discover when you were building a world and you're, you're inserting unicorns and, and dragons and these fantastical creatures that, as you said, don't have rights, at least at some point in your history? Um, like, 
I wanted to see if maybe our listeners could, could get a sense of the interesting, maybe the unexpected, maybe the deep, the intriguing things that come out of building a world when you add fantastical elements like that, and how does the world change? Well, yeah, I think one of the things that was interesting to me was how much I ended up looking at religion and how much I was looking at religion as one of the things that backs up the system sort of as it is. Oh, that's intriguing. And so I've got two conflicting religions, in fact, in this. And one is based on there's three moons and, and sort of there's there's different aspects uh, uh, assigned to the different moons and sort of which one was full uh, when you were born and that's that's one sort of set of worshipers and then there is a, a group called the trade gods and that's basically all the forces of economics each uh, little particular facet embodied in a particular trade god like uh, advertising and uh, supply and demand <laughs> and, and all of that and so that's the other set of gods uh, because there's a very strong uh, merchant social class and then, uh, you know, on the fantastical element itself, you know, having some of those creatures in the world, um, they're interacting with these religious points of view. Um, what came out of out of that being because, you you know, you build a world when you write a fantasy, you build a world where these creatures need to change the world. Right. right. They, they the world is different because they're in it. So um, did that lead down any interesting trails? I think it did, because one of the things that I had to look at was. Uh, sort of, as you said, kind of who who steps forward, who's willing to sort of fling themselves into the breach to better things. And at the same time, whenever something like that is happening, you've got a secondary set of people who are looking to take advantage of the situation. And so I, I got that. In fact, my villain is, is someone who's looking to take advantage of the turmoil and and what's going on. Very cool. Yeah. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Kat Rambo after this brief promotional break. Do you like listening to audio science fiction? Are you a fan of writers reading their work? My name is Mike Luoma. By day, I play tunes on the radio. The rest of the time, I'm creating science fiction and comic books. And I bring my two worlds together each week with my glow-in-the-dark radio podcast, where I read you my stuff. You hear free science fiction audio adaptations every week. And I give away the audio versions after I've podcast them, too. Free science fiction audiobooks on iTunes and at audiobooks.com. I hope you'll check out my Glow in the Dark Radio podcast or any of my free science fiction audiobooks at glowinthedarkradio.com. I'm Mike Luoma. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Cat Rambo, I'm, I'm curious, Cat. I, I think I think every writer wants to to ha- have their work have that that resonance with the, the wider world. I mean, and all speculative fiction is a lens of some sort or another. Um, and and I personally have found that when it when I when I want to express a certain concept or theme, it, it's very easy to get heavy handed 
with that and become very preachy or or soapboxy or what have you what do you do to ensure that that you're you're being the sly and insidious author and slipping (laughs) these things under our radar and and make and making it an authentic experience uh, and a good story as well well one thing is that i worked very hard at creating an amazing city you know i love fantasy cities you know like fritz lieber's lankmar is is one of oh, my yes. all-time favorites and so i wanted a, a world that was that rich and that was that kind of one that you you could think about and wander in for a while and one of the nice things about writing a lot of stories in a world is that boy you get to know it pretty well and then you know right now i'm working on the second novel uh set in this world and i i know the map by now which is awesome <laughs> um the other thing is, you know, I think it was Saladin Ahmed said the other day on Twitter, and, and I hope that's the right person I'm, I'm quoting, but he said, you know, characters are important, and if you take the character out of the story and put a different character in their place, it should be a different story. And that's something that I, I've really tried to stress. Uh, there are two main uh, points of view which alternate in the book, and it is very much their story. And I have tried very hard to make them characters that readers will enjoy, are each you, in very different ways. Are you going to give us a glimpse into a, an antagonist POV, perchance? No, okay. no, but, no right. not, not in this book. <laughs> but in future texts in the quartet? It's quite possible that it might be somewhere down the line. Awesome, awesome. What, what can you tell us about the, the two POVs in The Beasts of Tabat? One is a, a young boy of uh, 14 that has just come to the city for the first time. Uh, he's come down from the northern wastes, and uh, he's new to the city, which means he has a perspective which lets him see things uh, that uh, a normal inhabitant might not notice. And he is on his own. Uh, he's running away. He has a terrible secret uh, that is he must hide. And so he is trying to figure out what to do. And then the other protagonist is in some ways his antithesis. Uh, she is a uh, charismatic gladiator and she is one of sort of uh, the most prominent figures of Tibet. And she is, I, I love her. Uh, she's this kind of charming <laughs> rogue and she just cuts a swath through the, the ladies and the gentlemen alike. And I, I think she's awesome. Um, but she's also very cocky and she, she's gotten herself in a point where she, she's riding for a fall. And so, uh, she's got all sorts of forces working against her and, uh, she and, uh, the boy end up, uh, complicating each other's lives. Now not I can romantically, no, no romantics. Well, not they're not romantic, uh, but yes, she has plenty of romance because <laughs> she's a swaggering celebrity of the gladiator pits. Awesome. Now I can see with that primary character, that first character, that that's that's going to be the reader as well. Uh, uh, that that gives you the opportunity to to ask questions that the reader is going to be asking, right. uh, but have that from the POV uh, uh, in in the story itself. It, what, what other function does that first character serve for you? Um, he is, his situation is one that lets me comment on, uh, the relationship between beasts and humans. Uh, and, and here I will tip my hand on this because you find this out in the first chapter, so it doesn't really matter, but he's a shapeshifter. 
Ah. And in a world where, uh, you know, kind of social, kind of where you fit in things is very important, shapeshifters are just everybody hates them, right? Because, you know, they can pass on either side. Their identity is constantly shifting, so it's tough to nail them down in a, in a cultural or societal framework. Yeah. So, Kat, uh, is this the first time you – your first published novel, right? Yes. Okay. And have you written other novels before? Um, I have. I have uh, several other novels, uh, none of which have seen uh, the light of publication yet. Okay. So this it isn't the first time you've written a novel, so it's not that you're brand new to this. Um, you've – well, it, in some ways it is because this – well, no, no. Okay, I'm sorry. When I was in grad school, I wrote a novel. Uh, I wrote a, a novel about superheroes and it vanished in a move and I'm very sad about that still. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but this is the book that I started writing after I graduated Clarion West in 2005 and I have been working on it in one form or another for about eight, nine years now. At first, I had a, just a, a huge monster version, and I ended up splitting it into two. And so mm. the book that I'm working on right now is actually – I came into it uh, with about half of the material written already because I'd taken it out of the first book. Is it Hearts of Hearts of Tabat, the second Hearts one? Hearts of Tabat, it? yeah. And okay. it starts halfway – chronologically halfway through the first book, and it goes with other characters. Oh, neat. Well, you've had over 100 pieces of short fiction published, you know, nominated one awards, and – uh, here you are writing a novel, and not just a novel, it's a quartet of novels. Um, that's a really fascinating leap uh, for you as a, as a writer. Um, that must be exciting on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm really curious what it's like to, you know, to, to learn the new form, right, and to learn the, the novel length uh, when you're used to writing short stories. And can you maybe share some things you learned about that process? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and one thing that I know uh, was true, it, it was – this is like the 13th, 14th draft of this. Uh, you know, and, and one of the things I want to do is shout out to my husband who read every single draft. Uh, but it's weird because certainly in a short, you can't say, well, in a short story, you have to make every sentence count because you do have to make every sentence count in a novel as well. But I think sort of the, the density of prose in a short story, uh, may be more important or it may be more important that every sentence be a kind of you know lean mean little fighting machine uh whereas in a novel you can get away with the occasional uh slacker sentence although hopefully you don't have any um but there's also you can you can noodle around in a novel right you you can spend some time you know looking at your character's grocery list and as long as it's doing stuff that sort of bumps the plot along and gives you insight into character or or, or whatever you can do that and and so you can kind of pause in a way that a short story uh might not be quite as good at doing was there a point when as you were writing this that you caught your short story writer self saying i can do this in a sentence yes and having your novelist <laughs> say oh no we can do this in a paragraph baby oh god yeah or three but, chapters or, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah and it's like what is it there's that robot is it robot rally or ricochet robot where you're like i can get to that in three moves um yeah no sure i i certainly Certainly. I, and one of the things is that I also I, I've done a certain amount of technical writing and copywriting. So, you know, I, can, I know how to write an efficient sentence. 
uh, so yeah, I had every once in a while remind myself it was okay to, to, to sit back and, and relax a bit sometimes. So when, when did you heed that voice and when did you know it was okay to ignore it? And if I could add a corollary to that, okay, go ahead. <laughs> to what extent did you look at issue, issues of showing and telling differently in the novel form versus the, sh- the mm. short form? Mm. Well, okay, so I'm going to cheat on the, on the first first question, actually, <laughs> kind of, be, and, and it's actually, it's, it's because this is my process. Uh, when I sit down to write, I usually do time writings, and I'm just like, okay, I'm going to write, and I'm not going to worry about uh, what I'm doing. I'm not going to worry about the editor side of me, and that can come in later. Um, you know, so so I do kind of try and let all other considerations be put out of put aside and then just write. And later on, I'll worry about how to, to fit that in. Um, I, one of the things that I have found about showing versus telling is that it is perfectly fine to tell as long as you make it entertaining. Hmm. And and so, I mean, for example, I have a story that that fits into this called how dogs came to the new continent and it is basically modeled as it's a scholarly article that just sort of kind of goes crazy in the end uh and and so part of the entertainment value right is the fact that it is sort of masquerading as a scholarly article and you're kind of looking at it looking at it with a sort of double vision um so when you can make telling uh part of the story I, it's fine and and there is a certain amount of that uh th- there is a certain amount of you know repeated conversations and uh there are scenes that appear in the first book which then appear from a different point of view in the second book um but i think it's one of the things is that with my short stories uh if i can find a way to show a single moment that kind of, you know, can encapsulate everything. I, I try to go for that. Um, and if I could just weigh in just a little bit, I, I really resonate with what you said, Kat, where you can tell as long as it's entertaining, uh, uh, where, where if, if, if the telling, if a character, for example, or, or even the narrator is telling something and infusing it with their perspective, their unique, uh, biases and, 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 personal uh, foibles about what they're telling uh, it, it serves double duty you not only right. are learning the thing that they're telling you about but you're also learning about what they think about it and what they feel about mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. so and it's 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 sometimes very useful to look at television and and one of the the examples that I use in one of my classes is there is early on in Twin Peaks I think the third episode uh, you have this moment where agent Cooper takes them out in the woods and he has a blackboard with all the names of the suspects written on it. And he has a stump with a bottle on it. And he picks up a rock and he says, tell me about the first subject and, and a suspect. And they, they say something and he throws the rock and misses. And he says, tell me about the second suspect. And, you know, and it's like, you know, Laura Palmer's boyfriend, uh, he's a suspect that was out of town at the time. And it, it's exposition, right? It's just there to catch up all the readers that didn't turn in, tune into the first two episodes. <laughs> But at the same time, it's so kind of weird and wacky. And, you know, of course, it's got Kyle McLaughlin. So you're willing to kind of watch him uh, being <laughs> odd. Uh, you know, so that's, an, I think, a great example of exposition where you can get away with it because it's just weird and goofy and entertaining. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're running out of time, Kat, but I want to throw in one last question. Um, th- these characters that you have crafted for the Beasts of Tabat, and uh, do they sustain through the quartet? 
Yes. Oh, okay. yes. They're very important. To so, yeah. so they're carrying the storyline through. Now, I'm curious in your in your developmental process. There, there. You know that there are conflicts. You, you. Do, okay. There's my first question. Do you know the conflicts and then fit create characters to to run up against those conflicts, or do you evolve the characters and through them discover the conflicts? I, I worked on the characters, and then really? I figured okay. out what what was it that what sort of things would go in there, get in their way, okay. and what sort of things in themselves would lead to things getting in the way. Was there was there ever a, a notion of nudging where and, and I, I do this in my creative process you go down various paths and see how far you go and and how lush the path looks and say ooh is there food here uh, <laughs> uh, was there ever any difficult choices for you it's like God I really like this aspect of this character but it's not going to fit in the larger framework that's evolving with the story I, honestly there is one character that I'm still oscillating back and forth about whether he <laughs> dies early or not uh, you know there's a couple of things like that so yeah yeah there's 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 some choices that I'm I'm I, I don't know I, I now I'm committed to some of the choices in the first book I, and now I'm pinned down on those uh, but some of the second book uh, stuff is still it's shifting and and it you know because writing is such a weird process where you know you nudge something way over in chapter 21 and suddenly you've got to go back to chapter two and chapter four and chapter 12 <laughs> and, and you know and just fix little bits sure sure and i, I guess the, the the moral of that story is is to uh to to write things in dark pencil but uh, it doesn't go into pen until you put it out in print that's it Awesome. Well, dear friends, the, uh, uh, the the clock sitting before me has actually changed shape five times uh, in, in steadily more aggressive shapes. And, and right now it's dripping poison quills and threatening to throw them at me. So I'm assuming that means we're out of time. Cat uh, <laughs> Rambo, thank you so much. We are so looking forward to the Beasts of Tabat, and we so deeply appreciate you making the time and sharing some of your process with us, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Moses, dude, there's there's some literary gold uh, dripping in that last 20-ish minutes of conversation. <laughs> what's what's your uh, what's your takeaway on this one? I just want to write a story about uh, exploited uh, fantastical <laughs> creatures now, but I think it's already been done. <laughs> I think it's being done, yeah. I, I think you missed the boat on that one. <laughs> well, I, I for me, you know, and it was from the question that you asked, actually, that, that, that notion of, of show and tell. Uh, and the, you know, there's, there's so often there are these very clear dark lines. Do not use adverbs. Do you must show, not tell, you know, blah, blah, blah. Do not use second person present tense ever. <laughs> you know? And, and, uh, the, the simple fact is, is especially in the case of show, not tell, uh, uh, if you do it right, everything is show, even when it's outward facing is telling. And uh, uh, Mary Robinette Cole said to me one time that, you know, remember that we're storytellers. We're not story showers. You are allowed to tell some things. Ooh, I, I think that's intriguing. I think I think that's a tool I can I can tuck into my into my tool writers pouch uh, to pull out at a later date. Um, now, speaking of later dates, dear friends, uh, uh, seven days is the later date we're looking at. Seven days from right now, you come back to this little island in the potosphere. We will have Cat back. We will have Moses back. We will add to the mix a courageous guest writer, and we're going to workshop a story. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Uh, but that is, holy crap, seven days. That's a long time. I know it's a long time. Moses... What do you think our listeners should be doing 
in the next seven days to fill that time. I've got some fun homework for you guys. So what I'd recommend is think of a world that you have loved. It could be something from movies, from books, from a video game, comics, anything. Um, think of a, a, a setting that has spoken to you, a world that has spoken to you, and go back to that. Watch that movie, read those books, look at it again, and look at what it is about it that you love so much and see what you can learn from it. Ooh, that's a good homework assignment. That's nice. I like that. And 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 tease out, learn something about yourself in the process. There you go. Very cool. Well, I, I it's tough to top that. I'm just going to stick with my usual uh, friends. You find what you're looking for. Uh, uh, so if you set your sights on the awesome and the fabulous and the holy crap, that's amazing. Friends, if you look for it, you will find it. I promise you. We will be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys, you stay cool, be frothy, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.